Well, good morning, Encounter. How are you? The brave, the few that are skipping the parade. Yes. So proud of you for coming. Well, as Joe said, my name is Ryan Hansen, and I serve here at Encounter on the speaking team. And this weekend, the 4th of July, is when we get to tell the world that we don't care what you think because we're American. We're going to do whatever we want anyway, right? <laughs> you guys cheered. Everybody at 9 o'clock was like, what? No, what? Right? And I think that's hard to say out loud, especially with that much gusto, right? But I think if we're true, there is that deep American spirit, right? We're technically celebrating freedom from Britain way back when. But I think we are, a lot of us, we do appreciate that American spirit of as long as I'm not hurting anybody, then I'm fine to do whatever I want. And we take advantage of that, right? I think for me in my life, if I was completely honest, I would look at rules more as suggestions, right? I mean, there's always some flexibility. See, I see some hands like, yeah, rules, suggestion, that's about right. An example of that, right, way back in the day, I was in my 20s, and I was volunteering at church in the first grade room. There's like 50 first graders, right? Like, you can't really help them. You just kind of herd them, right? But they had like 50 of them, and there was like 10 table leaders, and they had like 15, 20 minutes before church where they could do whatever they want. So each of us table leaders decided to like set up a station, and they get to pick what they do, right? So like, Somebody did coloring, and somebody did Legos, and somebody did Lincoln Logs, and that was too old for the kids, so that person got ignored. Somebody wanted, like, they went for it, so they did a paper airplane station, right? They set up targets in the wall, and the kids got the, you know, the whole thing. But I had, I don't know why, but in my 20s, I wanted to be the most popular first grade volunteer ever. I wanted all the first graders to love me, right? So I decided that the only way to do this is with the best game ever invented, because remember, I had to go up against paper airplane guy, you know, and he was a jerk. So I decided the Jenga was the way to win the hearts and the minds of the first graders, right? So I decided that what better game to win over six-year-olds than stacking blocks, but not just into castles that you knock over. Oh no, Jenga. A box with three rules. The creator of Jenga decided that Jenga should only have three rules. Pull out block, put on top, don't knock it over, right? And I was like a little barker, right? I was like, come on, kids, don't miss out. Best game ever. This is what we're going to do. If you're at any other table, you're missing out. Get over here. And I got like half the kids every week, just probably because I was the loudest. But again, some of it because Jenga's awesome. So if you guys love Jenga, good for you. If you don't, hopefully you still got one at home and I can rekindle that passion. <clears throat> But it was amazing to watch first graders play Jenga, right? Because a lot of them never done it. And you always get like 25 kids around one of those weird folding Sam's Club tables, you know? And you get the self-appointed like table monitors, you know? Those people like, don't touch the table! Don't touch the table! If you knock it, oh, don't do it! You know, and I'm just like laughing at them because that's funny. But then you get the kids when it's their turn and they're like so careful. They're like, all right, what do we do? And they're like, they're testing every block, right? And they're testing every block, and they're really worried, and they think, like, the world's going to end if they knock it over, you know? So, like, they finally find that one block, and they're, like, everybody, like, collectively, they see that the person's ready to take the block out, so they're like, because <gasps> they don't want to be responsible for knocking it over. It's like, <gasps> and the kid puts it down, oh, and you get 25 people all releasing their air at the same time, and it's just a thing to watch. And because Jenga is like a game for everybody, right? It's got risk. You can knock it over. It's got suspense, right, when you're watching somebody else. It's got multiple winners. So like for kids, that's important because like everybody wins except for the one loser. But the one loser doesn't lose every time. So like even they're not too terribly upset because they win more than they lose, right? So like it's great. The problem with Jenga is that it's not great very long, right? And probably why nobody loves it is because it gets really boring, right? Like, it doesn't take much to be like, I can take a block out and put it on the top, and then within like a little bit, 
you just run it to the end every time, right? And even for like a six-year-old first grader, they get pretty good at taking a block out when they're testing and they're doing all the deal, right? So I decided my independent American spirit, I need to keep my title as most popular first grade volunteer because that's super important to a 20-year-old. So I decided that I needed to change the rules. I need to make it more exciting because the creator was dumb, didn't know what they were doing. So I needed to fix this. So I said, kids, no testing. That is a bad rule. No testing. You just pick a block and you go for it. And you yank it out and you hope for the best. And if you knock it over, we'll laugh at you, but you'll laugh at somebody else later. So move on. So no testing. So I changed the rule. No testing. But then they figure out like the wiggle technique, right? Because first graders, they still have brains. They're not dumb. So they figure that out. And then it becomes dumb again because... So then I'm like, all right, kids, this is the deal. No testing, no, you know, wiggling. That's weird. We're going to flick it. We're just going to flick it out. And that really got their attention because then they can hit people across the table. So that's like bonus points as long as no eyes balls are lost. Bonus points for like hurting people, right? So I was like, all right, just flick it out, you know. And you can flick it out and you can get, and I knocked that, but that's fine. And it's, it's entertaining. So the kids, they got little tiny, tiny fingers. So they're really good at it. My little sausage just end up knocking too much. But that was fine, and they got really good at flicking it, and it was a great time, and it lasted for most of the year until it got boring. And then we had to change the rules again. And then I said, all right, no test, no flicking. You got to grab three. So you got to grab a group of three, fast and fat, fast and flat. You just yank it out, and the whole tower goes ka-chunk, and I'd do it, but, you know, the table's wobbly. I was doing this all week at home. It was fun. Practicing for my moment of glory, but then the table's wobbly, so... You can just imagine perfection, all right? Just yank it fast and flat, and you can pull a whole row out, right? And then, amazingly, first graders got good at that. So then we did two rows, where you can do two rows, and like, boom, and then that works too. So needless to say, and Bob's going to try this at home, needless to say, I had 20 to 30 world-class Jenga players by the end of first grade, and I had many confused parents who heard more about Jenga than Jesus on the car at home. So I won the battle of popularity. I lost everything else. It was, a, it was a debacle, right? But I think the thing is, is that a lot of this is true outside of Jenga, right? Is that a lot of times in our life and in many areas, we think we can make up rules better than the creator, right? And a lot of times we're willing to bend, tweak, adjust the rules for our own entertainment because we don't want to wait because whatever reason, that we end up taking that American spirit of independence. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm doing whatever I want. Whoever made the rules is dumb. I'm doing whatever. We take that a little too far. And a lot of times that independent spirit ends up leading down a path of a sin. And I'm talking like Old Testament defined sin, like missing the mark, right? Like if the creator of darts wanted bullseye to be the mark, then like anything other than a bullseye is a sin, right? To miss the mark. Or like more religiously, like anything outside of God's desire for your life is missing the mark, is a sin, right? And I think the independent spirit can sometimes, if not guarded, lead us down adjacent paths. And that's the question that I want to answer today because maybe, maybe we've given into this, right? Maybe we've given into the idea that like lying is okay, right? It's one of God's top 10 commandments, but you know, it's easy to write off the Old Testament, right? Maybe like, you buy into the fact that, like, lies, I've heard, are the lubricant of awkward conversations, right? If you're in a conversation you want to be out of, you're just like, and it's time to be anywhere but here. I got to go, right? Or you just tell your white lie and you move on. And maybe you bought in that that's okay. Maybe you bought in to the fact that winning or the idea that winning is the most important thing. 
So be it sports, be it your job, be it whatever, you're willing to cut corners and cheat to get ahead. And it's like, as long as I don't get caught, right? I just drove to South Dakota. My wife did a lot of driving. But when I drove, I was usually a little bit over, right? Maybe you've bought into the, the idea that purity before marriage is an outdated concept. Or that marriage as a till death do us part covenant is an outdated concept. Or I talked to some people, not generalizing all of Canada, but I spoke to some people in Quebec and they weren't wearing wedding rings and I asked them about it. And I said, what's the deal? I don't see any wedding rings in all of Quebec and I've been here for a week. And the guy's like, we just don't get married. It costs more in Texas. So we just wrote it off. And maybe you've written off that marriage is just, you know, half of them in a divorce while I get married in the first place and you just wrote it off. Maybe you've changed the rules in other ways in your life that you think help you right now, but are technically not what God teaches in the Bible. And today I want to answer the question of, is our independent drive, especially this weekend, a good thing, a God-honoring thing? Can it be? Should it be? Or is it something that we need to be careful of? And I want to do that two different ways. I want to look at two Old Testament kings, and I want to compare and contrast how they ran their kingdoms, right? So I want to look at both of them face significant opposition from outside kingdoms during their rule, and both of them handled it very differently. So the first king I want to look at, I'll try not to knock my Jenga tower over, that'd be embarrassing, is in 1 Samuel 13. So feel free to flip to it in the Bible or it'll be up on the screen. But the first king I want to talk about is Saul, right? And during Saul's rule, he was, a little background, the first king of Israel. He was the king that the, the people wanted, but God told him not to, but God gave him anyway. He was the first king. And during, right before 1 Samuel 13, where we're going to look, he just won a big battle, right? He was fighting the Philistines, he took back the city of Geba, which is a big deal because it was one of those ironic priesthood cities, right, where all the Israel priests lived. So that was like a big win. He spread the news through all of Israel. Hey, we just took this big victory, blah, blah, blah. You know, and he did his like, we need you kind of thing to get more people to sign up for the army. And then his big mass army met in Gilgal because he figured the Philistines who he was fighting was going to like try to, you know, fight him again. So that's where we pick it up. In Samuel 13, 7, 1 Samuel 13, 7, where Saul, or, uh, Saul's got this big army. He just came off a of victory. <clears throat> and now 1 Samuel 13, 7 through 9 says this. Saul remained in Gilgal. All the troops were with him, quaking with fear. He waited the seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. See, it wasn't uncommon for kings to like offer up offerings and sacrifices to their God before a battle, you know, like get God on your side kind of thing, you know. And God said to Saul, that's fine, do that. But like wait seven days and Israel's prophet Samuel will do the offering for you. So just wait but Saul's guys kind of got antsy and they started scattering. He's like, I need all my people, right? And then he got nervous. So he didn't technically do anything wrong. It was okay for a king to offer a sacrifice. They had some priestly duties that they did. But he didn't obey God. God said, wait. He's like, I waited seven days, not all, more like six and a half, right? But I waited. I'm in the seventh day. Samuel didn't show up. It's not happening per my schedule. I need to make this happen. So he like disobeyed God. He independently acted outside of God's rules. And I think, like, what strikes me is how, how easy that is, right? Because Saul didn't technically do anything wrong, right? 
The only thing he did wrong was he didn't obey God 100%. And it's easy for me as an independent American, right? It's easy for me to do the same thing, to look for loopholes, right? Loopholes in America are like a good thing, you know? Like you find a loophole in your taxes, you save some money. A loophole to the rules, you know? You're not breaking them, you're just kind of skirting the edges. You get that competitive advantage, right? That's a big word, competitive advantage that everybody wants. And for me, I don't know about you, I can justify all kinds of things. I didn't technically break the rules, I should be fine. Well, neither did Saul. But he disobeyed what God told him to do. And a lot of times I know when I'm finding my loopholes or whatever that I'm doing wrong, right? You hear that still small voice in your ear of the Holy Spirit being like, wait, stop it. Don't do that. And you're like, but I'm not breaking any rules. It's fine. And that's the trap that Saul got in. And the problem is, right, when you disobey God, there's consequences. And Samuel brought the consequences to Saul in verses 13 and 14. Samuel's response to Saul is this. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, because Saul didn't follow God's commands 100%, even though he technically didn't do anything wrong, he lost his legacy. His kids would not be king after him. God would replace him with David, and his son Joshua would not, or Jonathan, sorry. His son Jonathan would not be king. All because he tried to act independently of God's commands. And that's where I think the the problem lies. And kind of the big learning that I get from Saul is this, is that you never know what consequences lie at the end of choices made independent of God. At the time, you think, this is great. I get what I want when I want it, right? Have your way, Burger King philosophy. I can do this. I'm not technically breaking any rules. It seems great. It seems great. And we shoot for the good in our minds. But God knows what's best. And we trade the best for the good, but there's consequences. And Saul hit some big consequences. But the problem with Saul is that he didn't learn anything, right? In 1 Samuel 15, God sent Saul and the army to go punish the Amalekites. He said, destroy everything, all their sheep and their cattle and everything, like horrible sinners. We need to like, you know, rectify the situation, right? So he sent Saul out. And what did Saul do? Well, he thought it'd be better if he kept the king alive, if he kept the best of the flocks alive to sacrifice to God later, obviously. And we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he had the best intentions. But Samuel had this response for him in chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel says this. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than a sacrifice and to heed is better than the head of rams. Even with the best intentions, when Saul's like, I'm doing this for God, he's like, but you're not listening, right? You're not listening to what God actually wants. You're giving him what you think he wants instead of listening to what he actually wants. And how many times are we guilty of the same thing? Of doing what we think is best, even though it's not actually. And after two very strong warnings from Samuel, Saul died learning nothing. 1 Samuel 28, Saul's again fighting the Philistines. He prays to God for guidance. He doesn't get an answer as fast as he wants. So then he goes across the valley to seek the advice of a medium or like a fortune teller. He says, what should I do? And she's like, it doesn't matter. Today you're going to die. And he does in the battle. 
Till the end, he doesn't listen to God. He doesn't technically do anything wrong along the way, but he continues to skirt the edges. He continues to do what he thinks is right instead of what God tells him is best. And I think that there's a big warning for all of us in that because it's easy for us to do what we think is right instead of seeking God's guidance and obeying and doing what's best. Now, the second king I want to talk about took a much different path than Saul. Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 is described like this, verse 3. Hezekiah says this, He, being Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asher poles. These are like shrines to false gods. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made for him. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands of the Lord had given to Moses. Now, how great would that be, right? He's like, he is the best king you've ever had, you ever will have. David's the king after my own heart, but this guy actually did it right. But we learned even Hezekiah had an independent streak in him, right? If we flip for a little context, right, the Assyrians were the kingdom going after Judah at this time, right? Israel had been split in half, Israel at the top, Judah at the bottom, right? Hezekiah was king of Judah. Uh, Assyria was attacking him. And Hezekiah kind of built an alliance of kingdoms around to try to push him back and push him back. But in 701, uh, the alliance broke. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, got sick of it. He went down into Judah. He captured all of the fortified cities except for Jerusalem. And in 701, he decided it was time to take Jerusalem. So Hezekiah's answer to the pressure of Assyria was this in verse 14, 18, 14. It says this. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria and Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me and I'll pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria extracted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver. A talent 75 pounds. So 375-pound blocks of silver. It's about $11 million in today's money. And 30 talents of gold, about $65 million in today's money. So like he took $75 million from him. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and all the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah of Judah stripped off the gold from which he covered the doors and the doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah is getting pressure from Assyria. They're going to attack Jerusalem. Instead of seeking God's guidance, instead of doing anything, he says, I'll fix this. He went to Amazon, bought a self-help book. How do you fix yourself? How do you save your city? Pay him, right? Everything can be fixed with money, right? So he paid him everything. Everything they had, all the silver, all the gold. But unfortunately for Hezekiah, right, paying Assyria is kind of like donating blood, right? Once you give once, they keep coming back, right? You got to like program into your phone Michigan blood so that you kind of get a warning so you don't get caught off guard. You know, that was what I did. I wouldn't recommend it, but you end up ignoring a lot of phone calls. But... Assyria came back, and they wanted more. But this time, this is where Hezekiah was different than Saul. Hezekiah learned his lesson, right? So in 2 Kings 19, 1 and 2, this is Hezekiah's response to the Assyrian's second approach on Jerusalem. So when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and went to the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, 
and the leading priests, and all the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. So when approached with Sennacherib of Assyria, who was going to attack Jerusalem the second time, Hezekiah said, I can't do this by myself. I need to know what God wants me to do. I'm going to seek God's wisdom through his prophet Isaiah. I'm going to send some people to seek it out. And then what did Hezekiah do, which was smart? He waited. He didn't try to solve his own problem. He waited. And he trusted. And Isaiah sought God's guidance, got an answer, wrote Hezekiah a letter. And this is what Hezekiah did when the letter came back. Verse 14. It says, As Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, then he went to the temple of the Lord, spread it out before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed. So even after he got God's response, he read it, he went to the temple, and he prayed, and he trusted in God's response. And this is what the letter said in verse 32. It says this, Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city, and I will save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, an angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And what's amazing to me is the two different paths. You have Saul, who continued to act independently, independent of consequences. You had Hezekiah, who, yeah, he screwed up, but he learned. He saw God's guidance, and he obeyed 100%. And that's what I think, you know, we can learn from Hezekiah. And that's what I find so encouraging from Hezekiah's story. Is that no matter how far off the path we get, it's never too late to turn to God for help. God will always be there waiting for us to turn back. And in comparing Saul and Hezekiah, I came across this commentator, Robert Bergen, in the New American Commentary, who said this about Saul. He said, It is ironic and symptomatic of Saul's spiritual dullness that a king believed he could obtain the Lord's favor through an act of disobedience. No line of reasoning, however compelling, could ever justify disobedience to the Lord. And that slapped me in the face because that's exactly what I do by trying to find loopholes, by trying to cut corners, by not technically doing anything right, but trying to pull up God's timeline to a timeline that more fits my wants. And maybe some of that resounds with you. I don't know what that still small voice in your ear is telling you. I don't know where God is convicting you in your life. But I know that God is calling us to live like Zechariah, to repent of sins, to turn to him first, to seek his guidance, to wait, and then to trust in his action. See, in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, it states this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, right? That's where Saul went the wrong way. He was leaning on his own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's where Hezekiah went right. See, in 1 Kings 19, I was reading the Bible in a year plan, and I got to First Kings. And this verse slapped me in the face like it never has before. First Kings 19.21 says this, So Elisha, he was Israel's prophet after Elijah, right? A little confusing there. When he was called to be Israel's prophet, this is Elisha's response. It says, So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out with Elijah, and became a servant. And I think this is just so convicting for me because how many times do we like 
feel that small, still voice in our ear, and we feel a calling from God, and we tip our big toe in the pool of obedience, and we're like, well, I'm going to leave some breadcrumbs back to my old comfortable life, and it's not perfect, but it's comfortable and known and safe. And we end up like leaving the escape hatch. If God, your plan doesn't work, I still got this to fall back on. But no, Elisha, he took the oxen that he used to farm. He took the plowing equipment and he slaughtered the oxen and burnt the plowing equipment and he had nothing to go back on. He was 100% all in. Zero independence, all dependence on God's plan, not knowing what was going to come ahead. It says he burnt it all, he gave away the meat, and he moved on. Elijah, whatever you say, I'm in. And I think that's what God's calling us to. How can we be all in on God's calling in our lives? The question that comes to my mind is, what is the Holy Spirit asking me, maybe you, to burn, figuratively or literally, so you can be free to fully enter the next stage of God's plan for your life? And I don't know what that is, but you probably do. And I want to end with the best example of living a life fully dependent on God, and that's Jesus. Jesus was fully God. If anybody should be able to make choices independent and do whatever they want, it should be Jesus because he's God and his best is probably God's best because they're the same, right? And yet, this is what we hear in John 5.19. Jesus gave them the answer, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. And to be an example for us, he lived a life fully dependent on the Father God. He didn't do anything without God's specific instruction. Luke 5, 15 and 16 says this, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed by their, of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lowly places and prayed. And this makes me think, how many times do we do things just for the approval of other people? Jesus had thousands of people that would follow him, and Jesus said, No thanks. I have to pray and see what God wants me to do. Yes, healing you, teaching you is good, but what does God want? And he would withdraw from the crowds, which would be super hard to do. He'd go alone and he'd pray, and he'd see the next step that God wanted him to take. And that's what he did. And even unto death, Jesus was fully dependent. In the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, Jesus prayed three times. He says, may the cup be taken from me. Obviously, nobody wants to die, but he follows that immediately. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He prays a second time. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Then he follows that up with, may your will be done. And three times he says, God, if there's any other way, I don't want to die today. But he says, your plan and God's plan was to send Jesus Christ to the cross to die for our sins to take the punishment and the consequences of all of our bad choices upon himself that day and to offer us the free gift of salvation, not earned. And all we have to do is believe in him to accept it. And I wanted to bring a visual, right? <clears throat> because I think the thing that we can learn from Jesus is that in all aspects, Jesus turned to God as a first resort, for, as a first thought, and not as a last resort. And that's, I think, what we're all called to. How do we turn to God as a first thought? When something comes our way, what would God want me to do? My first thought. Not, what's in it for me? Not, how can I figure this out? What does God want me to do? And not as a last resort, 
As I tried this, didn't work. I tried this, didn't work. I tried this, didn't work. All right. It's time to try getting on my knees and praying. Right? And I think that's what we're called to do. So as a visual, right, I think we need to bring this sermon full circle. We need to go back to Jenga. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, God said he created everything and it was good. But he said he created man and it was very good. And in our amazing analogy, we are the Jenga tower because it is very good, right? But in Genesis 3, we made some bad choices and we sinned. And each block that gets removed is kind of like a sin in our life. And whereas the tower doesn't fall over right away, it leaves scars, just like sin leaves scars on us physically, maybe emotionally, definitely spiritually. But the thing that that God promises that Jesus came. And in our horrible analogy, Jesus is like the box. And it says that Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. And this worked great at home. If it doesn't work here, you can just laugh at me on your way out. But Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. And it's just like Jesus comes and surrounds us. And because we've sinned, right, God is perfect and we can't be in, our pre- in his presence because of our sin. But when we accept Jesus as our Savior, it's what the church calls justification. It's when we accept the gift that Jesus gave us to take the consequences of our sins away. And Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. And all that God sees is his perfect son, Jesus. And he doesn't see our sins anymore. And a lot of people ask me, they say, but I don't feel any different after I say the prayer, after I accept Jesus as my God, as my Savior. I don't feel any different. It must not have worked. Well, justification is a point in time. But if you notice, the sins are still there. The temptation is still in your life, right? The way that God sees you may be different. But Jesus promises something different. He says, after I leave, I will send somebody else. I'll send the Holy Spirit, the alignment tool. And we'll start the process that church people call sanctification where it's a slow process that may take your entire life, but through that still small voice that you hear, maybe some their conscience, the Holy Spirit starts putting us back together. Sanctification is nothing but the process of the Holy Spirit teaching us how to be more and more like Jesus every day. And it may never be completed on this planet. It may not ever be completed on this side of death. Maybe it'll only be completed after we die, go to heaven, there'll be no more temptation left to throw us astray. But throughout our lives, we're called to be fully dependent on that still small voice, guiding us, directing us, teaching us how to live the life that God created us for and calls us to live today. See, I don't know where you're at in your journey. I don't know if maybe you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and today's the day to do that. Maybe it's time for you to live a life and commit to living a life fully dependent on God and his guidance. Maybe you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you've left some breadcrumbs, and it's time to start paying a little bit more attention to that still small voice of the Holy Spirit and start saying yes and acting on the direction that the Holy Spirit gives. To not look for loopholes, to not look for ways to cut the corners, but to listen to the Holy Spirit and just obey. See, my prayer today is that no matter where each of us are at on our journey, 
that God convicts us to take the next step, no matter what that is. To live a life less dependent on ourselves and live a life fully dependent on him. Will you join me in prayer? God, this weekend as we celebrate our independence, we also want to recognize that that's not the life you create us to live. You didn't create us to live independent, but you created us to live fully dependent on you. I pray that you help us to learn from the lessons of Saul. That looking for loopholes and cutting corners is not the way that you created us to do. Even though we're not technically doing anything wrong, we are sinning by not fully listening and obeying you. I pray that you help us to live lives like Hezekiah, where we repent from the sins that we've committed. We seek you first. We wait on your response. And we faithfully act on your direction. I pray that you help us to be like Elijah, so fully committed to following you that we will figuratively or literally burn anything from our past to clear the way for your path for us moving forward. And I pray that you help us to learn from Jesus' example. Not to seek the approval of the crowd, but to seek your approval by turning to you as our first thought and not as our last resort. And I pray that you make that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit louder than ever in our heads. Help us to clearly hear what you want us to do and give us the conviction and the urgency to act on it without question. I pray this week that you help us to take the next step in our journey toward our relationship with you. We thank you, and it's your name that we pray. Amen.